Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Backblaze. Backblaze is for unlimited backup. If you lose your files... They will actually send you a hard drive with everything you lost. You send it back to them, and they refund you for the cost of the hard drive. Go to backblaze.com slash CanadaLand. Seriously, back your stuff up. Quick note before today's episode, you're going to hear a lot of talk today about what's happening over at the Rebel Media and with Ezra Levant. After we recorded today's show, we learned of a new development concerning Ezra Levant and the Rebel, and we have since reported that. You can read that story at canadalandshow.com. Here is the discussion that took place beforehand. Reporter Maggie Rahr. Hi, Jesse. Today we are going to talk about Ezra Levant's identity crisis post-Charlottesville. Yep. And we're going to talk about the strike in Halifax that never, ever looked like it was going to end and how it finally ended and what we've learned through uh, your reporting and others since that strike resolved. Good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Nahid Yakubian. 
Clinton Hallahan, Aliyah Darcy, Nick Fillmore, Karen Charlebois, Lisa Gregoire, Hera Evans, Aaron Long, and Ezra Lipton. Ezra, why did you decide to be awesome? Because every month, for probably less than an ice-cold bottle of Molson Canadian at my local sports bar in downtown Toronto, I can support meaningful, high-quality Canadian journalism that challenges our current norms. And this episode is brought to you by Backblaze. Maggie, you are a freelancer. Are, are, are you anxious about losing your files? I actually am, yes. I think this is like a, a anxiety, like it's stress dreams we have about losing <laughs> our stuff. And now we have to actually like, we need good backup externally because when we cross the border into the States, we've got to like wipe our phones and laptops if you want to have good data hygiene around your sources and then restore everything on the other side. It's crazy, but this is like becoming best practice procedure, right? Data hygiene, yep. Backblaze is a great way to do that. It is a great add-on if you're using Dropbox or other cloud services. This is just some extra security and it is a way of making sure that everything you have is constantly backed up. They have backed up 300 petabytes of people's data. And really the best way for you to understand why this is a great solution is to go to backblaze.com slash CanadaLand. One thing that they offer is a physical data recovery system so that if, if, if you get completely wiped out, if you lose your computer, if you uh, need to basically rebuild everything from scratch, they can actually send you a flash drive a USB key or a hard drive with all of your stuff, the most recent version of all of your stuff on it, and you put that into your new computer or whatever, and you send the thing back and they refund you the cost of the drive itself. Seriously, back your stuff up. Go to backblaze.com slash CanadaLand right now. There's a special offer for our listeners, 15 days free trial. Check it out, backblaze.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Maggie, we are all reeling from uh, the shocking news last week. Yeah, it was an it was a nightmare to watch. Um, I think we're both referring to the same thing, which is the shocking news uh, that Ezra Levant has suddenly realized <laughs> that the alt-right is racist. Now, when I heard of the alt-right for the first time about a year ago, I thought it simply meant the insurgent right, the politically incorrect right, the grassroots right, the nationalistic right. Uh, prominent alt-right personalities back then included the outrageous but lovable Milo Yiannopoulos. But the alt-right has changed into something new, especially since Trump's election. Now the leading figure, at least in terms of media attention, is Richard Spencer and other white nationalists. By that, I mean people whose central organizing principle is race. Conservatives aren't alt-right, and we at the Rebels sure aren't, at least how that term is now used. Alt-right now effectively means racism, anti-Semitism, and tolerance of neo-Nazism. No, not us. Yeah, I hate to break it to you, but that's what it always was. He didn't know. Come on. He thought alt-right was just about having fun on the internet and playing around with fun cartoon frog pictures. He he thought that the alt-right was just about lovable Milo. Outrageous and lovable. <laughs> yeah, uh, lovable guy just uh, sharing pictures of gorillas that people are taunting Leslie Jones with. He didn't know it was about racism. Which banned him, which resulted in him being banned from Twitter, right? Yeah, that, that, that uh, when Milo was banned, that didn't tip off Ezra that the alt-right was, was racist. Now things have changed, he says. Mm -hmm. And now that the alt-right is associated most with Richard Spencer, now, now he has to distance himself and the rebel from the alt-right. The term alt-right was coined by Richard Spencer. And popularized. Yeah. Alt-right.com is Richard Spencer. I think this is a laughable claim on the face of it that, that I think shows very little respect for people's intelligence or their knowledge. The idea that, that, that it is now possible to put some distance and some light in between the rebel and the alt-right, it doesn't seem to be convincing anyone. It doesn't seem to be convincing his own people. Barbara Kay has parted company with the rebel citing bad apples. John Robson, one of their columnists, Brian Lilly, the co-founder, has parted company with Ezra and the rebel. Yeah. I think that when we talk about Ezra and I, I don't want to stage like a disingenuous discussion of like, oh, did he really know? Like we're openly contemplating that. Is he being genuine? There's a lot of opinions that come out when you talk about Ezra. People have heightened opinions and they have emotional responses to Ezra. But I think that you don't need to go there. Like uh, the proper context can be provided by just reminding people of a few facts. So I'll, I'll do that now. You know, Ezra talking now about how racism isn't him. It is a fact that Ezra Levant issued a, I think it was a seven-minute screed against an ethnic minority when he was on Sun News television, uh, calling this ethnic minority thieves and beggars on the basis of their ethnicity. And these people were the Roma people, and this was called hate speech, and he apologized for it. So that's a fact about Ezra. Another fact about Ezra is that in defending himself from a libel claim, his defense said, well, I couldn't have libeled you because I am a known troublemaker and controversialist. In effect, arguing that he's not to be taken seriously. That was his defense. And then in that same case, the judge ruled that he did libel this person. And the judge said that he had a reckless disregard for the truth. So those are three facts about Ezra Levant that tell us who we're talking about. I'm less interested in whether or not he was being genuine. I don't think he was. I'm more interested in why he finally did it. Because we have been documenting the rebels 
not just flirtation, but absolute coexistence as an alt-right, as an alt-right media company since they started. Why now does he need to act like these things are totally separate and always have been? Right. So, um, as you know, I'm sure, Faith Goldie, who is a correspondent, I guess you could say, for The Rebel, was down there in Charlottesville to cover the rally and the resultant protest and happened to be standing right on the street when someone was murdered by a driver plowing his car through the crowd. Yeah. And then, of course, Trump's response to that or non-response or, um, you know, hesitance to <laughs> respond and actually refer to racism or white supremacy or white nationalism in his statement. Uh, so definitely the heat's been turned up. But I, too, am confused about his response because... I find it very difficult to believe that he just figured out that that's what all right means. Also, on top of that, I don't know how much his audience is going to agree with him. Yeah, well, there's already uh, a lot of people uh, in the comments parting company with him because he's parting company with the alt-right. Uh, I mean, that's the story of the rebel is that it's, it, it, it really started out as Canadian conservatives following the death of Sun News TV, don't have a home, don't have a platform. Yeah. So he's, he's going to represent oil sands workers. He's going to represent you know, some more socially conservative stuff, uh, fears of immigrants. And, but within a Canadian context of conservatism, you know, to the right of everything else, but, but then it, it morphs and he follows the clicks and those clicks take him to Milo and everything else Right. to the point where now you've got Faith Goldie in, in an interview that, that we reported on openly praising Richard Spencer's manifesto delivered in Charlottesville. And I, I think that Faith Goldie said that the questions he posed, including with reference to the JQ, which is the Jewish question, yeah. were well, well thought out and robust ideas. So it's more than a flirtation with out and out white nationalists, white supremacists and neo-Nazis with his own people. But this is nothing new. Gavin McInnes, a uh, similar story not yeah. so long ago. It, it was Charlottesville that changed things, right? I mean, it, I think people saw the, the videos, you know, did you see the Vice video? Yes, I think everyone should see it. Oh, it's called um, Race and Terror in Charlottesville, I think. If people are looking for it, they uh, broke their platform and decided to make it available to the public without subscription. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, uh, millions have seen it and everybody should. There's a, a long interviews with this really reprehensible out-and-out uh, neo-Nazi guy, and that's interesting, I guess, enough. But what I found most interesting was the footage of these guys who, who look like just preppy dudes that you'd see like on a golf course, khakis and, and yeah. polo shirts with their torches marching on a southern town at night, evoking imagery of the KKK and shouting uh, blood and soil, an old Nazi slogan, shouting, you will not replace us. Some of them shouting, Jews will not replace us. And this was a unite the right rally. So though some of them are just, you can make a legitimate argument. I don't agree about, oh, we shouldn't be taking statues down. You can make that argument. But when you are marching alongside those KKK and neo-Nazi people, outright Nazi flags out, when you are marching alongside people shouting, Jews will not replace us, common cause with them, and then uh, somebody being murdered. And I think that those images shocked everybody. And I think that, you know, that finally broke this briefly, this romance between, you know, for Trump to call out to even say neo-Nazis and KKK, like that was a lot of pulling teeth. He quickly seemed to reverse himself and go back to moral equivalency. But I almost think that if Ezra had waited a day for, for Trump to reverse himself, he wouldn't right. have, you know, like it yeah, was, like, yeah, it was it in the way. Been, yeah, yeah. It, he, quote, could have gotten away with it. I think it's 
very telling. If you watch Faith Goldie, uh, the rebel correspondent who happened to be on that street as the car rammed through bodies and threw people um, onto the sidewalk bleeding, she too is in shock. If you watch this uh, live broadcast, she's sort of live reporting what's happening and then she'll say, ma'am, it's going to be okay. Or, you know, she points to the body that I believe is um, the victim of murder and she says, "She's oh, that doesn't look good. Um, she's bleeding. This isn't good. This isn't good. And you hear her ask, where are the police? Where are the police? And then there's this very interesting moment where the narrative shifts and she says, it wasn't until the Antifa, meaning the anti-fascists, meaning the counter-demonstration, it wasn't until the Antifa started marching that any of this happened. So already she's uh, correcting the narrative from her own perspective. Yeah, it's really astute to kind of take apart her reactions there, both because it's a fascinating document unto itself and not just because she happened to kind of by accident do this act of journalism and catch the most explicit footage of the murder. But for the reasons you're pointing out, like you're, you're actually seeing somebody in the moments before the murder, Faith Goldie is, is, is very much just in the tank spewing out her message, uh, her message track. Yeah. Look at this disgusting double standard. These counter protesters and Black Lives Matter people don't even have a permit. I'm appalled. Why aren't the cops here stopping? them. Then the car mows down, I guess, 19 people yeah. right in front of her. She could have been killed. And the facade of her partisan affiliation or, or whatever you want to call it, it, it slips away and suddenly she's just a scared person. And she's actually a humane person who has an impulse to say comforting words to one of the victims. Right. A witness to shocking violence that was, uh, that was unprovoked, right? Yes. And that dominates her reaction for a second uh, and shakes her from her message points. But then she very quickly reassembles herself and starts to suggest that this was caused by Antifa. And, and shortly thereafter, we have her spreading on, on Twitter conspiracy theories that it was because the guy's car was attacked, that it wasn't his fault. But I think that apart from just studying, you know, this one human being's response and, and whatever we can make of that, it almost is like an analogy, you know, like yeah. I, I, I think a lot of those guys in the golf shirts and the khakis woke up a day or two after after and got calls from their parents and like, you know, Chad, what, what were you doing and who were you hanging out with? And some of them lost their jobs. And I wonder if this is, is this the um, consolidating, catalyzing moment for uniting the right that was intended? Right. Or is, the, is this suddenly where people look in the mirror and say, oh my God, what have I become and who am I standing next to? I, I actually don't know. Well, I think at best we can hope that those moments were happening. But I think the more troubling thing, um, you might remember one of the faces, there was one really exceptional photograph, and I'm embarrassed that I don't know the name of the photographer, but it was taken at night, the night before the murder happened. And it's white men, and their faces are lit by the torches. And there's one guy, he looks like um, Edward Munch's The Scream without the hands to his face. Like, his his mouth is open so wide. Oh, yeah, so that's wide. the skinny guy screaming in rage. Yeah, he looks like a Nazi from, yeah. Yeah, he looks like he's in the Hitler-Juden, you know, like, pamphlet or whatever. And he's, and he's just screaming. Like, it looks like his head's going to burst into flame and his eyes are going to pop out. And then, of course, after this image went viral, he he comes out of, you know, nowhere on Twitter saying, oh, my God, I, I can't believe this has been circulated so widely. Also... I'm not racist. Yeah. 
I think that's the moment that a lot of people are having is, is you know, scurrying for, for cover and, and to d- distinguish themselves. Barbara Kay, you know, uh, said, as I mentioned, that, you know, there are these bad apples of the rebel and I, I'm out. We asked her to clarify that. She gave us a statement. She wouldn't talk about which bad apples. Brian Lilly, the co-founder of the rebel, we asked him onto this show to talk about why he left. He wouldn't do it. He did give an interview to the CBC and Brian Lilly. Which like, is funny. Li- <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny for Brian Lilly to be giving access to this. Like, Brian Lilly literally wrote the book against the CBC. <laughs> Here's what that sounded like, just because we, we can't talk to him directly, so we'll, we'll play some of that. It really was time to go. I mean, there'd been a drift for a while and a difference in, in focus. I've been describing it today as when you form a band with your buddies in high school and you just want to play rock and roll. You want to play three chords and the truth. Well, I, I want to keep playing rock and roll, three chords and the truth, but they've decided they want to play polka. I don't want to play in a polka band. Did, did you have any of these conversations with Ezra Levant? Uh, don't have uh, an awful lot of conversations with Ezra Levant and haven't for some time. Yeah, and, and, and you said it. you were concerned about it tainting your brand. How close are they to the line where, and uh, the, the rebel that is, where they become toxic? I think they're pretty darn close right now. Isn't it amazing how he's already saying there? Yeah. Also, polka? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, this idea that they they've changed, man. I mean, they have changed, and that they they I think that they have morphed into something more atrocious than they originally imagined. But you, the signs were there from the start. Yeah. Um, Brian Lilly is not returning our calls, but John Robson, who's uh, another rebel contributor who also jumped ship this week, he did uh, agree to speak with me, and that will be on the next Canada Land a discussion about why he left the rebel and where we're heading. Let's not kid ourselves. Very quickly after that sort of forced moment where Trump had to decry neo-Nazis, he, he you know, power is power and and he returned to his uh, many sides lines yeah blurring many sides moral equiv- moral equivalency ezra levant is is facing this you know mutiny or, or people jumping ship and it looks like the rebels days are numbered we'll see we focus on the rebel where where others i think have, have turned a blind eye or chosen you know let's not feed the trolls whatever largely because of their indisputable phenomenal popularity maybe the biggest news the rebel had this week in a week of a lot of big news from them about what's happening in internally was uh, Ezra Levant boasting that they had become the number 50 most popular YouTube channel in the world. Yeah. In the world. So they've been facing, you know, Lauren Southern left. These things happen. And meanwhile, he has a thriving little hate machine. And uh, I don't know that it can continue to succeed as well as it has without the hate. So I'm, I'm watching very closely to see what happens. Uh, and really nothing would surprise me. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I feel the same way about it. But I think it's really interesting um, that you just were kind of dancing around the edge of this idea that we ought not to indulge this kind of news coverage, if we're going to call it that. I find it hard to, you know, talk about Ezra Levant without also saying that this is a guy who calls himself on their website, Rebel Commander. So, like, I don't fully think of him as a journalist, obviously, but this idea that if we do interview, whether it be people in media or white nationalists or whatever, that we're somehow feeding their base and we need to just turn away. I think that that's so dangerous. I really do. Um, I think that there's been no shortage of examples of failures in mainstream centrist, if you will, Canadian media to appropriately cover these stories. 
And I think a lot of it comes down to language. I think that's a really important starting block that we've been fucking up. Yes, I think that there's uh, a lot of strategy that's been employed very successfully by the alt-right to change the label, change the brand of extremism, of Nazism, to, you know, even the term alt-right, the fact that we would use a term that was coined by Richard Spencer and let that become a default term. Yes. You're dancing to their tune. Either they're not allowed on because we say, oh, we don't want to give them a platform, or, you know, CBC has Gavin McInnes on, but is completely ill-equipped and ill-informed, really. They didn't know who they were dealing with. No, that was really unfortunate. So uh, knowing who you're talking to, uh, setting the terms properly, but uh, not playing into their narrative that the media is... Uh, so afraid by the blazing truths that they have and therefore we can't give them the microphone. I have a microphone right here I'm happy to provide one to people on the other side uh, or in these groups when I you know have accountability questions or I'm genuinely curious and so that's what we'll do This is the time on shortcuts where we thank our second sponsor our second sponsor today is actually a partner of ours CFUV a community radio station in Victoria They have a great show that I want to tell you about the basement closet sessions This is a music show that airs, if you happen to be able to pick up the signal for CFUV, it's Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on CFUV 101.9 FM. Um, But the rest of us can find it on their website. And Basement Closet Sessions has been elevating and amplifying local Victoria music and and the wider Canadian music scene since 2013. It is an award-winning show. It spans all genres. It is hosted and teched by CFUV volunteers. I love that there's still this vibrant volunteer radio scene in Canada, and they, they actually make some great shows. So check it out on SoundCloud, check it out on Bandcamp, or check it out at cfuv.ca if you don't get the CFUV signal at 101.9 FM. Maggie, can we uh, duly note some things? Let's do it. I would like to duly note, and it pains me to duly note this, uh, Margaret Wente column. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Maggie. I got to do it. It's, I got to do it. I, I actually her. thought about it and then was like, no. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're a wiser person than I am. Look, it was like the number two story on the Globe and Mail this week, and it's just the worst take. Headline, coding for kids, another silly fad. This is actually a pro-ignorance column. She's advocating against education. And, and what she writes is, computer code is basically a series of instructions that tell a computer to do something. It's irrelevant for most of us. There are a million apps for that. Making the case that, like, look, we need to be training you know, doctors and lawyers. We need people to learn, kids to learn math. You don't need to know how your program is written. You just use your program. You don't need to know how to fix a car. You just drive your car. Right, like the apps are generated in space by aliens and they just get delivered. Like, who does she think is going to, I mean, forget about apps. Like, who's going to be responsible for these decisions in the future? And shouldn't we want equal representation? There are no, like, 13-year-old girls getting dragged off to study code, you know? This is about writing or wrong. I mean, the reason why this is what she's outraged about this week is obviously the Google memo. Um, and yes, one reason why there's a push to teach kids how to code is because there is a terrible uh, lopsided, you know, yeah. like 2% of, of coders are women. And and code is not just some utilitarian thing that uh, is inconsequential. There's a ton of political decisions embedded in code. There's like what you make an app to do, who gets to make an app. Oh no, the ethics. It's like, I mean, you could run an entire program based around the ethics of these decisions within technology, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the idea in teaching some basic computer literacy and code literacy to kids is not the idea that 
all of these kids are going to grow up to become computer programmers or computer engineers. The idea is simply that like something dangerous is happening where technology is indecipherable from magic. When I grew up with computers, by necessity, if I wanted to do fun stuff with computers like video games or drawing that I wanted to do, I had to know how to install RAM and I need I needed to learn some basic code just to like feed commands yeah. into a, com a command prompt. And I have some idea of, of how it works and how binary code represents images. And, and later in life, when I was working with teams either on building a website or building an app, I had an idea of what they were doing and what was possible and what wasn't or why things would be difficult. You need to know that. And kids today who have devices where you can't even change the goddamn batteries on them, these devices don't want you to know what's happening in the magic silver container. So it's our job to teach some basics. And she's like, it's a destructive yeah. thing. This backlash where there's this huge effort in education to correct this. And she's saying, ah, oh, that's a fad. Let's get back to basics of math. Like, I just think that if people listen to this idiot, it's going to be really destructive. And I, I need it to duly note it. Yeah. Uh, duly noted. What do you have? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I have two things. I hope that's all right. The first is just a little story that um, Press Progress put out in light of um, all of the kind of shit show happening over at Rebel. And what they found was that 25% of conservative MPs have been guests on the Rebel at some point. And they wanted to reach out and get an idea of how these elected officials feel now. Would they be willing to go back? given everything that's happened, uh, or at least everything that's really now being delivered to us on a, on a platter since Charlottesville. And they were only able to confirm that with two people. I just think that's a really good example of advancing a story. Um, how do we uh, kind of monitor the uh, impacts of something so horrific here in Canada? So I like that. I want to give them a check yeah, I like that kind of journalism, turning that pressure up at the right time. And, and you know, the ones who are holding back, it's because the rebel, not just a, it's not just a way of reaching a lot of Canadians who vote, but uh, the association with, like, the rebel is a political organizing group that throws rallies. They have a ton of data on people who identify conservative. They have a ton of data on people who are new to politics hmm. and who are seduced by alt-right stuff who might vote conservative. So that's a really tricky decision for conservative politicians. Like They're only going to distance themselves if they feel forced to, uh, if they feel like they're held to account. Right. So uh, duly noted, good for, good for Press Progress for doing so. Yeah. And the other thing, this is, I'm kind of cheating a little bit because it's not CanCon, but I read this uh, column in The Guardian that really... Um, just floored me. It's First of all, it's very beautifully written. Uh, it's penned by this guy, Harry Leslie Smith. He's 94 years old, and he was um, a Second World War vet. I'll just read you the title. In 1939, I didn't hear war coming. Now it's thundering approach can't be ignored. And he, there's this really devastating little piece in this where he describes being out with his friends in 1939 and going to the movies and laughing about Hitler. And he says, we didn't know then we had precious few days left. And then he goes on to say, like, I look at young people today and I see them um, having a pint or wooing each other and I fear for them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I think it's also an important, like, hey, let's listen to those who have gone before us moment. Duly noted. I want to talk about the story that you have reported for us, the kind of fallout and what we're learning in the aftermath of uh, the end of this strike at the Chronicle Herald, the daily newspaper in Halifax. 
this was a long strike. This was an endless strike, 560 days plus. Yeah, exactly. Um, 19 months. And I just want to say, this is going to sound petty probably, but um, when I was a younger journalist <laughs> in 2005, I worked at the CBC when we got locked out. And that felt interminable and confusing and punishing. Like I couldn't believe how each day stretched and then bled into the next. And it was only eight weeks long. Yeah. So the idea that they've been at this for, you know, like walking the picket line, running local express for, um, you could picture an 18 month old, like I'm sure you've met somebody who had a baby. That baby is, uh, their entire <laughs> life has existed within the Chronicle Herald strike. It's been a long strike. Now, I, 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 my first day on the job at the CBC coincided with the beginning of that lockout. And I remember just oh, sitting, really? at, sitting at home waiting for it to end so I could work. Uh, yeah. So that these people have been at it for a lot longer than that. And what you wrote is uh, you sort of furthered the reporting that came out of this crazy little story from allnovascotia.com. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell people a little bit about them. They're actually, we should talk about them more on the show. They're a, uh, an interesting company. They are a thriving online news company that you will never hear much about because they have the most strict paywall, impermeable paywall of any news site that I'm aware of. Uh, you got to pay to get their stuff. You don't get 10 articles for free. They don't promote it on social media. If you try to take a screenshot of one of their articles, a pop-up comes and blocks you from doing that. Like you need to pay if you want to read their stuff. And they, they actually have a uh, enough of a subscription base uh, with a lot of business coverage. So I think a lot of businesses... They have very, very loyal um, readers. Yes. Uh, and they built a, a growing business out of this. And while the Chronicle Herald was on strike, their stories were uh, of some value to the replacement workers who are referred to uh, commonly as scabs. And I think that's where the story that you reported for us begins. I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Right. So it's a little, uh, just a little bit of background context. Um, as soon as the strike began and replacement workers or non-guild workers or scabs, as you may hear them uh, referred to as, uh, when they um, started doing the work of journalism, there was no shortage of embarrassing mistakes, just a, a failure to... Um, Shit you journalism. Know. Yeah. I think, I think you're, yeah, you're, you you're, that's what you're looking for there. Like the, the, there was that story about um, Syrian The jihadi refugees. child. Yeah, kids who were, and, and, and it was sourced based on some parent who didn't give her name. And there, were two, could... there were two white mothers who didn't feel comfortable giving their names who were basically complaining about a, a child, a child who had just arrived at their neighborhood school. Yeah, and and all the violence he was up to, and nobody could corroborate this or verify this at all, and, and it actually became like an international story. The Rebel picked it up, of course. Right. And then our own Russell Gregg, he wrote a piece for the Halifax Examiner where he just assembled every typo and mistake that these replacement workers... So, okay. Yeah, it's uh, an exhaustive they, list, so you get the idea. Yeah. It's, it's, it, was, it was a long, uh, winding road. <laughs> so then, on the day that the vote is ratified by the Halifax Typographical Union, this is the union that represents the Chronicle Herald Journal, and staffers. It just happened to be by coincidence. It um, uh, aligned with uh, the day that allnovascotia.com got some freedom of information documents back. They published a real bombshell of a story that basically shows with these documents that I just mentioned that one reporter in particular, a non-guild reporter, was lifting copy directly out of allnovascotia.com and it doesn't end there. This is the weird part. Then, it's not a simple plagiarism story. 
Right, which is a word that you won't hear all NovaScotia.com using. <laughs> um, I think they're saying similar wording and copying passages and this kind of thing, because obviously people have to be very careful about this if there's mm-hmm. potential legal action on the line. But anyway, um, they have the copy that they've taken from allnovascotia.com, allegedly, I'll say. And then they email it to communication staff with the city and ask them to edit it. The city communication staff agree to vet the work and then return oh it God. to them. <laughs> yeah. Now, like, uh, yeah, as I mentioned in my story, as you know, it's not an unlikely thing for, I mean, journalists are constantly in touch with, uh, you know, municipal employees, provincial employees, beyond government. You're always following up again with your sources and your contacts to make sure that your work is correct. Not just that. If we're, if we're going to be really forthcoming about the fine arts of shit journalism, it is total standard operating procedure in any newsroom, I think, for journalists to take a story that was broken by a rival outlet. Often a like smaller a community, you know. Yes, especially if they're small enough that it's not obvious to everybody that you're taking yeah. their stuff. And rather than simply credit them or, you know, throw up a link or try to extend their story in some way, the larger organization will re-report, go back to the same government officials to get the same comments and redo the work so they could present it as original journalism. And in a way, one must applaud this replacement worker at the Chronicle Herald for doing away with the hypocrisy and simply, I... <laughs> simply taking the all Nova Scotia story, handing it to the elected official and saying, uh, is this true? Yeah, this is the thing is part of the FOI. I think they got 200 documents, nearing 200 documents in total, but there were emails between communication staff at the city saying, check this out. Can you believe this? Wouldn't it be great if we had this kind of oversight over all stories involving us? Yeah, if, if every reporter asked us to just vet their article and then and then we could be their editor. Which and sure print. is haha, but actually highlights the bigger issue that is at stake here, which is the entire point of independent journalism, right? Well, th- I mean, this is what happens when papers, you know, we got to do more with less. Well, this is how you do more with less. Uh, you 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 basically let government PR flacks write your articles for you. Or you hire someone that's so inexperienced that they don't know that that's unprofessional. Sure. But I wonder about throwing that one worker under under the bus because I'm sure that there was no oversight as to the ethics or the practices. Be- I don't know. I suspect that uh, all that mattered was filing and filing a lot. Uh, right. And now, you know, okay, great. The strike's over, but only half of the unionized workers are coming back. And they're actually going to be working shoulder to shoulder, as you report, with those replacement worker slash quote unquote scabs. Right. I'm sure that'll make for great morale around the office. But right. like, So to what degree, that's still unclear. But because of the finer point of negotiations, there's still so many unanswered questions about what it's going to look like. I mean, you've worked in a newsroom. You know what it's like when there's a switch up in management or whatever. And the idea that you could be working alongside people who were using these practices and it's a really rough time for those journalists. And I would actually like to just tip my hat to them right now, those who are going back um, and those who have found work elsewhere and those who have elected not to. Cheers on surviving this year and a half. 
Hell, I'll say it to those young journalists who took those scab jobs under crazy uh, criticism to show up for work every day alongside those grizzled old union vets. Uh, whatever anybody wants to say about you, uh, you're braver than I am. I, you know what? I, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you one question, Maggie. Like, Chronicle Herald was never a great paper in recent memory. And I, that's not a slag of, of the journalists there. It's they, They've been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. Not a great paper. And now it, was, it, it was. It was at a time a fantastic paper. you got to go back a while. As far as, I, as far as I'm told. This was their uh, first labor disruption of significance in many years. And there were rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds of merciless cuts and cutbacks. However, among those who remained, there were some incredible journalists and photojournalists. No question. No question. No slag to them. But what I'm saying is this. I think that management wanted to break the union. I think they pretty much did. And now it's back to business with uh, a very compromised operation is this the best outcome or would not a better outcome have been if some of those striking journalists and laid off journalists from Chronicle Cuts past just started their own damn thing during this, just served a market that needed news? I mean, well, they generated Local Express during the strike, which was a um, viable, competitive, trustworthy news source. And, and that could that could have been spun off into its own competitor to Chronicle Herald. Instead, I read that was this actually in the deal? Like the Chronicle Herald wanted to own all of the content from Local Express? Yeah, it's still being negotiated. Oh um, my but God. but right now, the um, you know, and after the deal was announced, uh, friends on Facebook that I know who, you know, work for the Herald were furiously trying to save all the work that they'd done for Local Express, and it was like, God damn it, how do I get this PDF? You know, like they were trying to protect what they had. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's that's a horrible thing for anybody in, in in journalism to watch, for work to be disappeared and unpublished is unconscionable. So I hope that that's not the outcome. Yeah, but if season one of this mess was the Chronicle Herald strike, I would love to watch season two. That was the survival of Local Express, but unfortunately, I just don't think it's in the cards. No, that's like some alternate universe season two. Season two instead is back to work at the Chronicle Herald, and I. And I <laughs> Yeah. Glad I'm not there. Maggie, uh, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me, Jesse. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I read what you send me and I respond when I can. And I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Maggie, where can people find you? On Twitter under Maggie Rahr. That's R-A-H-R. You can get our stories in your Facebook news feed if you just press like on our page on Facebook, or you can go to CanadaLandShow.com uh, where we throw stories up when they are ready to be thrown up. Better to like the stories and just get it in your news feed. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. People, you've obviously figured out how to listen to this podcast, but if you are a Spotify listener, you can now listen to us on Spotify. Spotify has cherry-picked a few podcasts. They're kind of in beta, dabbling with podcasting, and CanadaLand is one of the shows. And in order to find us on Spotify, there is no clear way to instruct you to do this. It is not well laid out for the time being. And I'll actually make this a contest. If you can figure out, when I communicate this to listeners, and I'm saying, go listen to us on Spotify, here's how to do it. If you can get that down to one sentence, I'll send you a t-shirt. So please, uh, that contest is now open. The producer for this show is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.